Welcome to Beaver Lodge Alliance's sermon podcast. We're so glad to join you. This is the latest sermon. We pray that you would receive encouragement, exhortation, and that Jesus would speak to you through this sermon. Enjoy. Well, today's a good day. My goodness. I'm just excited to wake up in the morning and not have to either trudge through minus 40 or three feet of snow. It's fantastic. So my mom and I were chatting on the phone the other day, and she was complaining that uh, it was so cold. She's in Florida, and she said it was 67 degrees this morning. It's so cold, I can hardly stand it. And I thought, yep, (laughs) that's great. That's great. Have you guys heard the folk tale of uh, the blind men and the elephant. It's a pretty famous, it's an old folk tale. It's pretty famous. But here's how it goes. That one day in a remote village, uh, an elephant happens to come by. Um, and now this village had never heard of an elephant before. So everyone was quite excited to witness this new thing. And a group of blind men thought, we need to go experience what everybody is talking about. So they wanted to experience this elephant firsthand. The blind men come upon the elephant and decide the only way we can actually understand what this elephant is is if we all gather around the elephant, each of us touch a different part of the elephant, and we'll describe what we see and try to figure out what it looks like. So the first blind man touches the trunk and says the elephant is most assuredly like a giant, powerful snake. The second man touches the ear and says no. The elephant is definitely like a large sail on a boat. The third blind man touches the leg and says, you're both wrong. This elephant is like a a large pillar. The fourth blind man touches the side and says, without a doubt, this elephant is like a massive wall. And the fifth blind man touches the tail and says, the elephant is like a strong rope. And the sixth blind man touches the trunk, shaking his head at all the others It touches the tusk, rather, shaking his head at all the others and says, I've got it. This elephant is like a spear. Now, which one of the blind men was right? All of them and none of them. They all had a clear experience of a piece of the picture. They understood with their own hands one small part of the truth of what the elephant looked like but none of them understood the entire whole truth. Just this last week, I was driving in Grand Prairie, and you know the roads were poor, and most people were driving, especially careful with all the ice and the slush. But there were some, and maybe you were one of them, but we won't call you out, but there were some who were driving in a more careless manner. One person in particular was spinning out at every stoplight, we were always ended up in the same place together, but as soon as the light turned green, they would spin out and charge towards the next street light, and we would end up together again, and they would drive as quickly as they could to the next one, and it, it was proving to be quite dangerous. They were fishtailing a little bit and causing quite a bit of havoc. I found myself thinking, look at this bozo. What are they doing? They're going to get themselves hurt. They're potentially going to get me and my family hurt, and I was quite upset. And it actually was quite true. There was large potential for danger. But it probably wasn't the whole story. I quickly questioned myself, what if they're experiencing an emergency? 
What if something is happening and they have to desperately get to where they're going very quickly? What if there was a reason for their rash behavior? What if there was more to this elephant than I was currently seeing? We're in our Be Like Jesus series where we're asking this question. What did Jesus do? And what real, intentional, and actionable difference does that make in my life today? Jesus has a knack for seeing the whole elephant. There are two passages passages of Scripture that we're going to look at today. The, The first is from John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Now, before we get to that passage, I just want to talk to you about this passage in particular. We're not going to talk about, we are in a moment going to talk about what's in the passage, but I want to talk to you about kind of what's around the passage first. Not the context, but something more interesting. If you, uh, if you have your Bibles, you don't have to open them right now, but at some point, go and look at John chapter 8. You'll notice, likely, that there's a little footnote at some spot, or it's bracketed in some way, and somewhere it will say something like this. This section does not appear in the earliest manuscripts. Now, this is not the sermon, okay? So we're just taking a break from the sermon for a moment, and I just want to talk to you a little about, about, about the Bible itself. Because there's a couple of sections that are like this, two in particular, that, are, that there's a footnote that says, this section does not originally appear in the earliest manuscripts. What this means is that this piece of Scripture from from uh, John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11, likely was not original to the book of John. John, the apostle, likely did not write this section of Scripture. However, while scholars believe that this section was not original to John's gospel, many believe that this is a true story about Jesus that was added later a true story about Jesus that was added later. The reason it's noted in your Bibles is because there is some question about the origins, about its origins within the book of John. Likely, John did not write this part. Now, people have used this as a reason to second-guess all of Scripture. They say, well, look, scholars don't even believe that this part of Scripture was written by John, so how can we trust any of Scripture. If this is in here, how can we trust any of it? So they've used it as a reason to second-guess all of Scripture. But actually, this is a reason to trust Scripture all the more. Here's what I'm talking about. We have much confidence in the historical accuracy and the legitimacy of the vast majority of Scripture. There is very little question, almost no question, that the things recorded here in the Bible did indeed happen. We have accounts, obviously, from Scripture. We have very many, many accounts uh, pointing to Scripture. We have early, early, early records of people talking about the things that happened in Scripture. We have historical records that talk about what happened during biblical times. So we have a very, like, a, a great foundation for trusting that the things that are recorded in Scripture actually happened. There's no question, or very little question anyhow, that the things recorded here in the Bible did indeed happen, and were recorded accurately, except for a couple of minor incidents that didn't appear in some of the earliest manuscripts, 
like this out of John chapter 8. And these minor incidents, even if removed from Scripture, take nothing away, take nothing away from the overall story of God's interaction with mankind. These small bits of Scripture, if they were taken out, take nothing away from God's overall story of his interaction with mankind. So we have firm confidence in what is shown to us in Scripture, what we read in Scripture, that this is God's written word for us. And while John chapter 8, the beginning of John chapter 8, may not have appeared in the original text, this story about Jesus parallels many of the other stories that we have complete, complete trust in. Complete trust in. Just like the other story that we're going to read out of Luke chapter 7. So, do you understand what I'm saying here about this piece of Scripture? So, they have marked out the couple of pieces of Scripture that they do not see in the earliest manuscripts. But the vast, mature, vast majority of Scripture, we have complete confidence in exactly where it came from, that it's exactly accurate, and that it's legitimate. Okay? So, we still read this passage of Scripture from John chapter 8, because we have actually great trust that it actually did happen. And it actually parallels many of the other passages of Scripture, particularly the one in Luke chapter 7 that we're going to read today. So, that was a little bit of an aside. Just to explain to you as you're reading through your Bible, just to explain to you when you come to John chapter 8, why it's got that little footnote. There's another one in Mark chapter 16, if you're interested in looking it up, a little bit of a footnote talking about that passage as well. But let's look at John chapter 8, and we'll move into the sermon portion now. And we'll look at John chapter 8 and see what, in that passage, the place where the scholars believe this passage did indeed take place, that this is a true story of Jesus. But let's look at what this passage of Scripture says. So look at me now, look with me now at John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Now, this is a simple story, right? We read this story, we go, okay, that's very simple. Let's move on to the next story. And it seems very simple until we start asking questions, until we start looking for the rest of the elephant. So, so picture what's happening here, okay? Picture what's happening here. Jesus is preaching in the temple courts. People are milling about, going about their business. There's, there's some people over there who are, are worshiping Jesus. There's some people over there that are, that are engaged and debating the scriptures. There's people gathered to hear Jesus preach a sermon. Lots of people gathered every time Jesus showed up. 
there are people passing through. This would be an, a common thoroughfare to get from one place to the other. They would have walked through the temple courts. So there are people all over the place hustling and bustling around. This place was meant to connect with God's people, to learn about God, to worship God, to be in God's presence. That's what this place was meant for. And here comes the Pharisees, and they're dragging behind them. I mean, just consider how crazy this would have looked. People are in God's house, and they're dragging along this woman behind them who had been caught in the act of adultery. In the act, likely this woman was not dressed for the occasion. She was likely not dressed for being in the temple courts to worship God. She may have had a robe thrown over her shoulders, maybe just a cloth wrapped around her. And the Pharisees make her stand before this group, this increasingly large group, of course, as there's much commotion going on, this group of self-righteous and angry men. They say she has broken the law of Moses. What was the law of Moses? Well, the law that they're referring to is found in two places in the Pentateuch. Deuteronomy 22, 22, and Leviticus 20, chapter 10, or verse 10, and they both say almost exactly the same thing. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. The Pharisees claim that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. But where is the man? Where is the man? I mean, this passage focuses on the man. Where's the man? This whole thing seems awfully sketchy. The Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now John adds something here. Maybe not John, we're not quite sure, but somebody adds something here that says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. This was no holy and righteous group trying to please God. This was a mob trying to trap Jesus, and they were using a woman as a prop. Well, what was the trap? If Jesus honored grace, right? Scripture says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, right? If Jesus honored grace and, and told the group to forgive this woman, then the religious crowd would have turned on him. They would, they would have had a heyday. However, if Jesus had honored the law and told the group, yeah, go ahead, stone the woman, that's what's in the law, do that, stone the woman, then his followers who had been following him, watching his grace-filled life, would have turned on him. And not only that, but at this time, the Jewish people had no right to execute anybody. The Romans had stopped them from being able to execute anybody. And so if Jesus had said, yes, you should execute her, then he would have been going against the Roman occupiers in siding with the law. He would have gotten in trouble with them. There seemed to be no good answer for Jesus. This seemed to be the perfect trap. If you add to that the fact that Jesus was known for honoring and uplifting women, this was a rough time to be a woman or a child. In this time, it was really tough to be a woman or a child, which 
Everyone at some point was a child, and half of the people were women, but this was a rough time to be a woman or a child. But Jesus uplifted women, honored them, did the same thing for children. Jesus was known for this, and doing so was getting him into lots of hot water. And so here they bring the perfect trap before Jesus. Here's this woman. Here's this woman. But the Pharisees only saw a part of what was going on, a part of the elephant. This woman standing up in front of the self-righteous and angry men while being a prop for the Pharisees was definitely not a prop for Jesus. She had a name. She had a story. And she had a past. And most importantly, Jesus saw for her a future. What would Jesus do? What would he do in this situation? Jesus says to the crowd, Jesus is so smart. I love him. He's just a smart guy. He says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What a great answer. He, like he plays the middle of the road really well, right? Really well. Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And one by one, Scripture says that the accusers left, starting with the oldest. That makes sense, doesn't it? The older I get, the more I realize I'm not perfect. I think when I was young, I kind of thought I was close to perfect. And maybe I thought one day I'd get there. The older I get, the farther away from perfect I get. The more I realize that I've got my own bag of rubbish that I carry around with me. I think I would have been one of the first ones to drop a stone. When Jesus said, if you're perfect, if you're without sin, you go ahead and do it. I would have gone like, I'm out, done. That's not me. So every single one of the woman's accusers leave. Every single one of them. Now, it doesn't say that everybody left. It, it says that, that they, like speaking of the accusers, it says they all left, but there could have still been a crowd of Jesus' followers watching. But the point is that all the accusers are gone and only Jesus and the woman are left there. And Jesus looks around and says, like I love how he does this. Like he's just writing in the, on the ground and he just kind of looks up and looks around him as if he's surprised at what just happened. Woman, where did they go? What a, what a fantastic question. Has no one condemned you, Jesus says. No one, she says. But Jesus is still standing there. Jesus is still standing there. Jesus is the only one who is without sin. The only one, from, from what he said, the only one that has the ability to throw a stone at her and accuse her. But Jesus was not focused on the woman's faults. He was focused on her future. And so Jesus says to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus didn't want her living in a, a life of brokenness. That's not, he didn't want her to live that because the, the life of brokenness was destroying her. It was destroying her. He didn't want her to live that life of brokenness, but neither did he want to condemn her. He wanted her to live into her future. Jesus saw the whole elephant. Let's look at the other passage. This one is from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. Read along with me as I, as I read this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. 
So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, we could get into this story. There's a lot going on in this story. But I want to draw out to you just a couple of points. This would have been a very tense moment. It's strange. It's weird, right? It's a weird thing. Jesus is reclining at the table, and they, one of the ways they would do this, they'd have the table, and everybody would kind of like lay down. The tables would have been low. They would have been kind of laying down up on their, their elbows or whatever to eat at the table with their feet out behind them. This woman comes in, comes behind Jesus, and begins messing with his feet. What a strange thing. Like, this is just weird. It's just weird. It was a very tense moment. And this woman was well known, at least to the Pharisee. He knew who she was. He knew that she was a sinner. He knew what she did. And her sin was likely even more serious than the woman caught in adultery. Because Luke says that this woman had lived a sinful life. The woman caught in adultery might have just made a once-in-a-lifetime mistake. It might have been her first time making that mistake ever. But this woman here is someone who lived a sinful life, doing the same things again and again and again. She comes into the house uninvited and begins to make quite a scene, interrupting everything. I mean, can you even imagine if you, if you invited somebody to your home, somebody who you maybe respected, or at least a person who was respected, comes into your home, and someone comes uninvited and begins to do something like this? The Pharisee is perfect, perfectly right to think, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And the Pharisee is exactly right. 100% he is right. Jesus did know. Jesus wasn't surprised by who she was. He knew. He knew more than the Pharisee about how much of a sinner this woman was. Can you imagine 
every sin and secret laid bare before the only one who has the right to judge you. She comes before the Son of God, and he knows. He knows. But how brave this woman was. How brave this woman was. Brave or crazy or stupid, I don't know. Jesus knew everything about this woman, even more than the Pharisee. Jesus knew her past, but he could also see the future he wanted for her. So Jesus tells the Pharisee a story about people owing different debts and how the one who is forgiven much loves much. And he turns away from Simon and he turns towards the woman. But still speaking to Simon, Jesus says this, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? woman. Simon, do you see her? Not as a sinner. Not do you see her reputation. Not do you see what you think about her. Not do you see a nuisance or an interruption or an inconvenience, somebody who has come into your party uninvited. Simon, do you see her? Do you see her? She has a name. She's a person a real, live, breathing person, someone who's created in God's image, someone who has value with a story, with a past, and hopefully a future. She has value as a person. She has value just being her. She has value just being her. She's also likely, of course, makes sense, she's someone's daughter. She's potentially somebody's mother. She's got friends. She's got family. She's got relationships. Simon, do you see her as more than just a thing that has led a sinful life that is disrupting your supper? Do you see her? These are two stories about women. We could go on to find many other women who were written off by society, many other men as well. Jesus didn't just see women. He saw men. He saw children. He saw people. Jesus saw people. He saw them. He didn't treat them as inconveniences or as distractions or as nuisances. Jesus stopped time and time again to speak to those who society had pushed to the fringes. Jesus also stopped and saw those who were well-to-do. Here Jesus was eating in the house of a Pharisee. He spent time with the religious elite he spent time with people regardless of their status. Think of Nicodemus, the fantastic story where he talks with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Think about the Roman centurion whose servant is healed. Think about the tax collectors. Jesus saw people beyond the way that most people saw them as having value regardless of what they had done in their lives. He saw them as created in God's image loved and sought after, forgiven and made whole, these are the ones Jesus came to save. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the woman caught in adultery, the woman living a sinful life, the leper, the wee little man, the murderer, the thief, the despot, the Pharisee, and the tax collector. For God so loved the lost and the discarded. For God so loved you and me. This is what Jesus came for, 
to seek and save all those who are lost, every single one of us. Church, do you see this woman? Do you see this man? The ones whom Jesus died for. The ones who have value just being who they are. Do you see them? What did Jesus do? He saw people. He saw people past the outer trappings, past the reputations, past the act- their own actions, past their own actions. Jesus saw people. So what real intentional and actionable difference does that make in how you and I live our lives today? How does this change how we live our lives? And God is calling us to see people too. God is calling us to see people too. Not to get stuck on the outward trappings, but to see people. So what are some practical ways that we can do this? Well, I, I have a silly way, okay? I have a very silly way. You might not think it's so silly, but I, I think it's very silly. One such opportunity present before us is the mask-wearing thing. This has maybe become blown out of proportion, but everywhere you go, there are people masking up or not masking up in strange places. I've seen people driving by in their cars with just themselves in it. Nobody else in the vehicle, and they're wearing a mask. And it seems to be this ongoing joke thing of how silly that person is. How stupid that person must be to drive in a vehicle all by themselves with a mask on. But we don't know what's going on. We don't know what's happening. Maybe it's their company's policy to wear a mask, whether someone is in the vehicle or not. Maybe they forgot. Okay, I don't know about you, but I've gotten in my vehicles now that it's cold. When it was hot, I was ripping that thing off as I was walking out the door. But I've gotten into my vehicle before when it's cold. I've had it on. I've been driving down the road. Oh, right. I can take my mask off now. We have no idea why people are driving around with their masks on. Why would we judge them automatically and say how stupid they are? We don't know why people are doing the things that they're doing. So maybe we need to choose to see that person and not judge them too harshly. I've seen people in grocery stores without a mask on. There's a big sign on the the store door that says, hey, you need to wear a mask when you come in. And people are walking around in the grocery store with no mask on. Oh my goodness, this person doesn't care about anybody. They don't care about anybody. Or they're a conspiracy nut. Or they're one of those, you know? They're one of those. But we don't know. We don't know. Maybe they can't wear a mask due to some other, some other reason we don't understand. Maybe they forgot. How many times have you walked into, I've, I've walked into all kinds of businesses and I've gone in there and I've done my shopping and I'm on my way out and I'm like, I forgot to wear my mask. We have no idea. We have no idea. Maybe we should just see people and stop judging that they might be full of fear. If they're wearing a mask, they must be full of fear. If they're not wearing a mask, man, they must be crazy. Maybe some of those things are true. I don't know. Maybe they're true. Maybe people are fearful. Maybe people are crazy. It wouldn't be the first time. But we still don't understand the whole story. I've, had, I, I've been the crazy one. I've been the fearful one. 
And there's reason for why I've been in that situation. I was up on a roof helping somebody shingle the other day, and he was on the very edge. Like, he was on the, like on the edge. Like, I don't know. It was like the edge. He was like on the edge of the roof, like one foot almost dangling, and he's like nailing stuff in. And my heart's just going like this, right? And then he did his thing. He's like, okay, your turn. I'm like, <laughs> really? Like the edge, it, did, it wasn't this, this kind of a drop. Like it was like, I don't know, five, 600 feet, something like that to the ground. I don't know. <laughs> it felt like it. But I had fear. I had fear as I'm nailing in this thing. Now, part of that was smart. <laughs> it's just smart fear. But part of it was not. Now, if he just looked at me and gone, oh, you're so stupid for being afraid. Why are you, why are you being so stupid? That, why don't we stop for a moment and just assume that whether people feel like their reasons are legitimate or not, or whatever the story is, let's just assume that there's more to the story than we understand and see people. Seeing people might mean accepting them for just where they're at right now. Accepting them for where they're at right now. Maybe asking questions, not to prove a point, but to genuinely understand the person behind the mask or not mask or whatever it is. What if we just assumed that the person we're, we're across from is loved by Jesus? Loved by Jesus. And there's more to their story than we can understand at this moment. And so I'm just going to choose to see this person as someone that Jesus desperately loves. We can do that with all kinds of people, can't we? We need to check our judgments and assumptions about politicians, don't we? Man, I've heard so much about politicians lately. Goodness gracious. You don't know. You don't know. How about street-involved people or people who are addicted to, to drugs or alcohol? They're just lazy. Man, if they would just get their life together. You don't know. You just don't know. What about the LGBT community? What about people who are done with church and just are, are done? What about people that are driving erratically on the street? You just don't know. And I'm not saying that we don't need to question. Let's question. Let's be curious. But not to prove a point. Not because we want to make sure that person knows. But just so that we can see people better. Maybe we need to start seeing people better. Now, many of you guys know that I wear glasses um, for reading, and that's a new thing for me just in the last couple of years. I, I, uh, I make all my notes up in 16-point font, right? <laughs> just huge. But if this was like anything less, I'd be having to wear my glasses all the time. And I, I'm convinced that at restaurants, the menus, they're, getting, they're making the writing smaller and smaller. I'm convinced of it, right? I think it's a conspiracy against me. But when I can't see something, I have to stop. I have to stop for a moment. I have to get out my glasses and put them on, and then I can see clearly. It's amazing the difference that these glasses make. Maybe we need to intentionally stop every morning, several moments throughout our day. We need to stop, and we need to put on Jesus' glasses. We need to put on Jesus' glasses when we look at other people. Whenever we find ourselves judging, 
Maybe we just need to stop, put the brakes on, and just go, I wonder how Jesus would see this person. And stop for a moment and put on Jesus' glasses. Because we don't see clearly, do we? We don't see clearly. Worship team, you guys can come on up. So maybe a good practical prayer for each of us to pray is something kind of like this. Jesus, help me to put on your glasses today. Help me to see people clearly as you see them. Because I can guarantee you that Jesus is not just asking Simon this question. He's asking the question of every single one of us. Church, do you see this woman? Do you see this man? Do you see the ones whom I love? I just love the way that Jesus interacts with people. Time and time again, he sees them. He sees them. And it's because he sees them that they feel seen. It's because they feel seen. Because they feel seen, they receive him. Do you just, I, we're having a little bit of, it's okay, we're almost done. Probably me. All right. Just pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your presence. Jesus, we're grateful for your example. We're grateful for your example that you see people. You see people. Jesus, help us to have eyes that see. Help us to have ears that hear. We oftentimes want to see you, Jesus, and hear your voice. God, help us to see your creation the way that you see it. And so, Jesus, right now, just, I just bless your church with the fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you just help each of us to see with the eyes of Jesus and hear with the ears of Jesus and have a heart towards people the way that Jesus would have a heart towards people. Yeah, change us, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus. We love you. We thank you. And we pray these things in your powerful name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. If you'd like more information about us or find out ways to contact us, visit our website at www.beaverlodgealliancechurch.com. We pray today that you would experience the love, presence, and power of Jesus Christ and then make him known.